This is the Twilight Zone Sandbox, and I'm your host, Jason Schwartz, and I'd like to welcome you to my very first podcast. If you haven't listened to the trailer for this podcast, I'd like to quickly let you know what kind of podcast this is going to be. This isn't going to be just another episode-by-episode review of the Twilight Zone. There's already Twilight Zone podcasts out there that do episode-by-episode reviews, and and some do it really, really well. Here at the Sandbox, we're going to focus on the original series and its creator, the late, great Rod Serling, but that's only a starting point, a home base, if you will, that will lead to many other things. Things like Serling's other works, other science fiction fantasy anthologies, classic TV shows, movies, and pop culture, all with connections to the Twilight Zone reboots and copycats, Twilight Zone bios of actors and actresses that we will affectionately call Twilight Zone players, and many other rabbit holes. My hope is to present the information and my analysis in a fun and unique way that continues to keep the Twilight Zone torch burning. Basically, we're going to be playing in the sandbox that Serling built and exploring around the playground as well. On the Twilight Zone Sandbox, we will explore the Twilight Zone in strange and different ways with segments like Six Degrees of Serling, Anthology Apology, Soup of the Day, Person, Place, or Deadly Thing, and many others, including Part 1 of our Cliff Robertson series, Bubblegum Card Bios. So strap on your time helmets, and let's begin. edition of Bubblegum Card Bios. Do you remember Bubblegum Cards? If you don't, or you want to trip down memory lane, type it into your favorite search engine and you will see a plethora of different kinds of collectible cards. Sport, TV, movies, so many different kinds of cards. I remember buying football cards and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle cards uh, from my local supermarket in the checkout aisle with all the other impulse buys. Included in the waxy paper wrapping with the cards was the worst piece of gum you ever tried to eat. As I was down one of my nostalgia rabbit holes, I noticed there weren't any Twilight Zone trading cards. At least not from the 90s on back. The kind with wax paper, stale gum, and stats on the back. I was thinking how great it would be if there there were bubblegum Twilight Zone trading cards, and if I had some for this podcast, when a strange door appeared on my office wall. I opened it, walked in, and found myself in a strange warehouse storage area with shelves everywhere and mysterious tagged objects on those shelves. A man and a woman came up to me and said, Welcome to our Emporium. What is it you have lost? I was trying to explain to them that I hadn't lost anything when the woman 
poked the man with her elbow lovingly in the ribs and said, Hey, brown eyes, look over there. And she pointed at one of the shelves. He nodded, smiled at her, walked over to the shelf and picked up a pack of cards. He brought them over to me and said, Here you go. This is what you're looking for. Share it with others and enjoy. It was a wax paper pack of Twilight Zone trading cards that looked like it was made many years ago. I tried to say where did this come from, but all of a sudden I was back in my office watching the door disappear. And, and this like this like just happens like a few minutes ago, so I, I'm assuming you guys must be the ones that I'm supposed to share uh, these awesome cards. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna open them up right now and find them here and and we'll, let's see what happens. Set that nasty gum aside. Oh wow, it's a Cliff Robertson pack. Cool. Let me just flip this first card over here. It uh, looks like a, a Hollywood headshot uh, of Robertson. Um, it says here, uh, Cliff Robertson is a two-time Twilight Zone player who starred in Season 2, Episode 23, 100 Yards Over the Rim, and Season 3, Episode 33, The Dummy. Two very iconic Twilight Zone episodes. Clifford Parker Robertson III was born September 9, 1923, in La Jolla, California. He was a third mate in the U.S. Merchant Marines during World War II. He is a Golden Globe nominee and winner of both an Emmy and an Oscar, along with many other awards. Robertson was a certified private pilot and was even inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame in 2006. He died at the age of 88 on September 10, 2011. Interesting fact, Robertson was flying above New York City when the World Trade Center was attacked on 9-11. Robertson says, quote, I got over the World Trade Center climbing at 7,000 feet. I looked down and suddenly saw this great big column of smoke. I didn't see the plane because by that time it was already inside the building. I just thought it was an explosion of some kind." End quote. And that quote was from airportjournals.com. Uh, after that, the skies were shut down and everyone was ordered to land. Uh, let's take a look at these next cards. Uh, looks like it's a few of Robertson's more interesting non-Twilight Zone roles. It is a young Cliff Robertson in like a 50s TV space uniform that resembles an army uniform with a, even with a the garrison cap. On the shoulder of his uniform is a rocket ranger's patch. It's kind of cool. He looks pretty young too. Uh, flip this over. Like many actors of his day, he found work wherever he could which meant he worked on stage, on television, and in movies. Between 1953 and 1955, Robertson appeared in two Broadway productions, Late Love, 1953 to 1954, and The Wisteria Tree, 1955. While he was in Late Love, which also starred another Twilight Zone player and bewitched megastar, Elizabeth Montgomery, uh, Season 3, Episode 1, 2, 
He was also doing a children's show that aired live on Saturday mornings called Rod Brown of the Rocket Rangers, of which he played Rod Brown. According to eyesofageneration.com, Robertson would, quote, rise on Saturday at 4 a.m., drive to CBS Studios, go through rehearsal, and do a live broadcast at 11.30 a.m. Eastern. After the program, he went over to the theater where he played in Late Love for a matinee and then an evening show. End quote. In an interview he would do at the end of his career for metvlegends.org, Archive of American Television, he said he did the show because he was, quote, thinking of money and the chance to pay the rent regularly. Nothing more than survival. Never knowing it was going to be fairly successful. End quote. He would receive $175 a week together with his really long Saturday at work. The show also starred another Twilight Zone player, Jack Weston. Season 1, Episode 22, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, and the much-maligned Season 4, Episode 18, The Bard. I wanted to see a clip of the show, but all I could find was the music from the show. I was interested because my mother watched Howdy Doody as a child, and, and even I watched a live children's show in the 80s, The Bozo the Clown Show. We watched it when we had cable and access to Chicago Channel 9. And although it wasn't live when I watched it, I remember watching Captain Kangaroo, which ran from 1955 to 1992, and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which ran from 1968 to 2001. Although I'm not the greatest researcher, so there could be clips out there, there might be a reason why I couldn't find any. The kindoscopes were ordered by the courts to be destroyed. Kindoscopes were the main way they recorded live programming to film for later use. Look it up after the podcast. It's fascinating. Uh, what happened was Rod Brown of the Rocket Rangers bore too close a resemblance to another show that used to be on CBS but had been moved to another network called Tom Corbett's Space Cadet. The Space Cadets sued the Rocket Rangers and won, possibly the first case of its kind in the early television industry, and so the show was lost. Even though it was only on one year, there are still today fan pages that are dedicated to the Rocket Rangers. Next card here, it's black and white. Uh, Robertson is wearing a simple button-up sweater and a tie underneath. He's sitting on like a stone bench in a garden. He's got a copy of Robertson Crusoe next to him. Underneath it reads Charlie, um, spelled like you would spell it, C-H-A-R-L-I-E. Let's flip this over. In 1955, Robertson had a big break into film with a supporting role in the movie Picnic which led to a leading role in a 1956 movie, Autumn Leaves, with Joan Crawford. Both movies were successful and, and jump-started Robertson's career. Uh, fun fact, the movie Picnic, uh, in 1957, 
marketing researcher James Vickery said he had included subliminal messages such as eat popcorn and drink Coca-Cola in public screenings of Picnic for six weeks, claiming sales of Coca-Cola and popcorn increased 18% and 57% respectively. However, Vickery later admitted that there had never been such a message. And his announcement was a marketing trick. And you can read more about that on Snopes. Not only was Robertson appearing in movies, but his TV career was taking off as well. He was appearing in TV shows like The Untouchables, Wagon Train, and he appeared in many other anthology shows that dominated the airwaves at the time. Anthologies like two episodes of Craft Theater, the story for the episode The Big Break was created by Twilight Zone player Jack Lugman. Three episodes of Playhouse 90, uh, the episode Days of Wine and Roses would later be turned into a movie starring Jack Lemon in the part previously played by Robertson. He appeared in four episodes of the United States Steel Hour, uh, the episode Two Worlds of Charlie Gordon, which must be what the picture is from, was nominated, he was nominated for Outstanding Single Performance by an Actor in a Lead Role. Uh, Robertson bought the rights to this story in hopes of making it into a movie and starring in it after losing out to Jack Lemmon in the movie version of Days and Wine and Roses. Seven years later, he would make this dream come true. Also, four episodes of Bob Hope Presents the Chrysler Theater. Wow, that's a mouthful. For the episode The Game, Robertson did win the Emmy for Outstanding Single Performance by an Actor in a Lead Role for a Drama. This, uh, this next card looks like a fun one. Robertson is outrageously dressed like a cowboy. He has a big cowboy hat, leather frills dangling everywhere, and a purple and white polka dot tie with a matching purple and white polka dot band game. That's right. Cliff Robertson was a Batman 66 villain. Batman was on from 1966 to 1968 for three seasons and 120 episodes. It's a campy action comedy starring Adam West as Batman and Burt Ward as Robin, and a host of side characters and villains many of whom are Twilight Zone players, including Cliff Robertson. Cliff Robertson played Shame, the Cowboy of Crime. I'll bet you are probably wondering what all this is for. That thought did cross my mind. Pretty soon I'm going to shoot this trusty six-shooter of mine, and when I do, a herd of cattle's going to come stomping this way in a mighty big hurry. Holy stampede! Now those cows don't stop coming for no man. Not even you, bat fella. And when they get through stomping, there ain't gonna be enough of you left to put in a thimble. Shame on you, shame. Watch your tongue. Hasta la vista, partners. I'll tell everybody you died with your bad boots on. <laughs> I wonder what will happen to Batman. Robertson appeared two times as the villain Shame 
which is four episodes since Batman 66 was always two-part cliffhangers. Robertson loved playing Shane, um, and it even seems like he played a part in the invention of the character. The villain Shane would live on past Batman 66 and appeared in the Cartoon Network animated series Batman the Brave and the Bold in 2008, along with a few other Batman 66 villains like Bookworm and Egghead. In Robertson's first episodes, Comeback Shane, Season 2, Episode 25, and It's How You Play the Game, Season 2, Episode 26, his sidekick was Oki Annie, played by Joan Staley. But when asked to reprise the role, the next season Robertson gained a new sidekick, Calamity Jan, played by his then-wife, the talented Diane Miro, Holy ball and chain! who was a stage movie, and TV star in her own right, not to mention the only child of post-serial heiress Marjorie Merriweather Post. The episodes that Robertson and Muriel would perform together in are Season 3, Episode 21, The Great Escape, and Season 3, Episode 22, The Great Train Robbery. These episodes would bear a resemblance to a movie that Robertson would make a few years later. Batman 66 was on well before I was born, but I remember loving the reruns of the show, except I didn't really understand it was a comedy back then. Uh, Rewatching it as an adult, it's a brand new experience, and a, a really good one, I might add. It's a great show, and the amount of Twilight Zone players who are villains on the show, I'm going to have to dedicate an entire episode of the podcast just to Batman 66. Holy understatements, Batman. That's right, Robin. Holy understatements. Interesting. The next card here is Robertson bare-chested on a surfboard hanging ten on a California wave. And the caption reads, Big Kahuna. That's right, we're talking about Robertson's role in the 1959 cult classic, Gidget. What in the world is a Gidget? It's a girl, a cuddling, befuddling teen, who set out to find her a man of her own, and found seven. Seven young beachcombers with a single thought to enjoy life and love without working. Meet Kahuna, their leader, and Waikiki, Stinky, Lord Byron, Hotshot, Loverboy, who tried to live up to his name, and Moondoggy, who was quite a guy. There's no such thing as the next best thing to love. You'll get to meet them all when you see Columbia Pictures' Gidget. Brought to the screen from the bestseller that proves a teenager can be delightfully juvenile without being delinquent. So if you want to find out why all the boys fidget over Gidget the way slightly older men fidget over Bridget, don't miss Gidget. Filmed in CinemaScope and an eyeful of color. Gidget, the story of the beach generation. That's right, Cliff Robertson, the big kahuna himself. Gidget came out in 1959. It was the story for the beach generation. Or at least that's what the trailer said. Gidget is the story of a 17-year-old girl named Frances, soon to be called Gidget, which is a combination of girl and midget, not very PC 1959, who doesn't want to chase boys like her friends, and stumbles upon some beach bumps and decides surfing is the life for her. The movie was based on a book written by Frederick Connor. The movie's popularity spawned a salute of sequels and TV shows and TV movies. 
Cliff Robertson is the Kahuna, an Air Force veteran who's sick of rules and being told what to do by the man or something like that. He's a beach bum, just bumming his way from beach to beach to surf. Gidget looked up to him kind of like an older brother. The rest of the bums are just hanging out at the beach for the summer, except Moondoggy. Man, I love these names. And Moondoggy is the one Gidget likes, of course. Moondoggy wants to cast off life's rules just like the big kahuna. And he also wants nothing to do with Gidget because she's just a little girl. Gidget's mother is played by Twilight Zone player Mary Rochelle, who appears in two great Twilight Zone episodes, A World All His Own, where her name was Mary, and in Living Doll, where she purchases one of the most terrifying items in the Twilight Zone universe, Talkie Tina. What's strange for me is this movie came out in 1959, which is the same year the Twilight Zone started. This movie has so much color and brightness, it hurts me. Because when I think of 1959, my mind is a 9-inch black and white. I basically think of everything from the Twilight Zone time period as being black and white, even movies, which is absolutely wrong. I believe the first season of Gilligan's Island was actually black and white, and they later colorized it uh, for reruns. I wonder if there are any colored episodes of the Twilight Zone, and even if there were, I don't know if I'd want to see them. I'm sure this wasn't one of Robertson's more challenging performances, but actors are usually remembered more for performances that transcend into pop culture than their best performances. At the end of his career, the great Burgess Meredith said, out of all his roles, the Twilight Zone roles were the ones he was asked about the most. Although with the Twilight Zone, you do get transcending pop culture and great performances, so there is that. Even though it's a teen beach movie, Robertson is great in it. It's actually a great movie for what it is. It's totally worth the watch. Uh, this next card's in color. Uh, it's Robertson in a suit, sliding down a slide at like a playground, uh, with an expression of joy on his face. Underneath, at the bottom of the card, it reads Charlie, except spelled C-H-A-R-L-Y, Charlie. Uh, the performance that won Robertson in the Academy Award was for the movie Charlie. I mentioned this a little earlier. He was in an episode of the United States Steel Hour called The Two Worlds of Charlie Gordon, based on the novel Flowers for Elgeron, written by Daniel Key. Robertson liked The Two Worlds of Charlie Gordon so much that he secured the rights to the story in hopes of making it into a movie someday. You see, Robertson had played the lead role in a Playhouse 90s drama, Days of Wine and Roses, years earlier, which, he, which had also been turned into a movie, but Jack Lemmon got the lead role. So by securing the rights to The Two Worlds of Charlie Gordon, Robertson could secure the lead role if it was ever made into a movie. Fun fact, the movie version of Days of Wine and Roses also starred a Twilight Zone player, the, the great Jack Klugman. Robertson won the Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance, becoming the second of only two actors to win an Oscar for a role that they had originally played on television. The movie Charlie starts out with Robertson dressed in a suit, 
sliding down a slide at a playground. It has that eerie 60s, early 70s film quality and cinematography that if you were flipping through the channels and stopped on this movie, you would either guess it was an artsy drama or a horror film. I have to say, though, Robertson deserves his Academy Award if only for this beginning scene that takes place during the opening credits. When he comes down the slide, all in slow motion, and immediately turns back to the ladder to do it again, Robertson conveys the pure joy of youth and innocence. It's such a beautiful shot made perfect by great acting. Charlie is a vulnerable adult and has a very low IQ, but he greatly desires to improve his ability to write and read and learn. He is selected to be the first human to receive a special surgery that will improve his cognitive abilities. So far, the procedure has worked on rats, specifically a rat named Algeron. Charlie has the procedure and eventually his intelligence increases. His knowledge increases and is nurtured by his teacher, but his psychological development isn't cared for in the same way, or at least that's how they try to explain it in the movie. Charlie is now very attracted to his teacher and he gazes at her whenever she bends over or when she leans over to help him out with a problem. I started to wonder if this was going to be an obsessive murderer or serial killer or something because they were really playing this part up. So much so that he shows up at her house, her apartment that is, and makes a pass at her. This is probably the strangest part of the movie because she calls him a moron and says no one will ever love him. It just seems so out of character for the teacher to just all of a sudden react this way with such violent language. It's, it's very strange. And then it gets a little stranger because then there's a montage of him joining a biker gang. Yes, you heard me correctly. A Hell's Angels-like biker gang. Or maybe those aliens from TZ-59 Season 5, Episode 18, Black Leather Jackets. There are leather jackets, hot women, raw attraction as they ride around in what looks like a desert outside of New York. I, I don't know. All the while, back in the city, his teacher starts pining over Charlie, missing him being around. It's a weird Stockholm vibe going on. It kind of stops being weird after that. Uh, when Charlie comes back, the movie continues to be really good. It's very much science fiction and feels like a Twilight Zone-esque movie, so I won't talk about the ending. I strongly suggest you find it on a streaming service or at your library and watch it. Because it was so sexually driven, I decided to find and watch the original Playhouse 90s version as well because I was wondering how a TV show from the 50s could address these issues like this. Uh, in my opinion, the Playhouse 90 version was way better and basically had none of the weird vibes of the movie. Maybe it's because I loved the old way of storytelling, more like a stage performance, but it was better nonetheless. It was a sweeter story, and even though the love interest needed to fall for Charlie quickly, it felt way more natural and again sweet. Strangely enough, no biker gangs in the TV version. Also, the TV Charlie wasn't driven by raw intelligence like his movie counterpart was. Uh, movie Charlie was just interested in numbers and equations, 
but TV Charlie had fallen in love with novels and stories and beauty, not, not just uh, data and math. Even the differences in how they spell their, their names, you know, Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-I-E, or Charlie, C-H-A-R-L-Y, single the kind of show or story you're going to get. If you haven't, watch them both and let me know which one you like better. I found them both online through YouTube and Amazon. All right, I'm excited for this one. On this card, Robertson is a cowboy again, but it's not an exaggerated cowboy, like a shame. He's wearing a cowboy hat and a cowboy duster. He's on a horse, riding alongside Twilight Zone player Robert Duvall, uh, who was in season four, episode eight, Miniature. The caption reads, Cole Younger and Jesse James. Now, there are many, many TV shows and films Cliff Robertson starred in and or was a part of, but this one's dear to my heart. They came riding out of the West like outlaws, and they were the greatest. This is the story of how Cole Younger and Jesse James joined forces for the great Northfield, Minnesota raid. These bank was Mississippi, Northfield, Minnesota. Starring Cliff Robertson as Cole Younger. Co-starring Robert Duvall as Jesse James. What were they really like? Cole couldn't resist gadgets and mechanical marvels. He even wore a bullet-retarding vest. Jesse had visions and deep hatreds. A place called... Northfield. The Great Northfield Minnesota Raid was released in 1972 and starred Cliff Robertson as Cole Younger of the James Younger Gang that came up from Missouri to rob the First National Bank of Northfield, Minnesota. The reason this is so dear to my heart is that I am from Northfield, Minnesota. And I'm currently recording this podcast about six or seven blocks away from the First National Bank, which is now a museum. I didn't know about this movie, so I was super interested to see if it was at all accurate. Drum roll, please. Not really. But it was a fun movie, and I'd definitely watch it again. Every year here in Northfield, we have a reenactment of the bank raid during the defeat of Jesse James days. The defeat part is important because we're not celebrating a criminal, we are celebrating the defeat of his gang and the protection of the town. The reenactment has horses and townspeople and guns shooting blanks. It's a great time. It's also a great excuse to have a parade, eat cheese curds, and go on a tilt-a-roll. The movie kind of makes us out to be a bunch of hicks, though. Robertson's character, Cole Younger, has to convince the town people to put their money in the bank. Because, at the moment, no one trusts the bank. He makes a deal with the banker to pretend that there are bandits and robbers on the prowl, and the safest place for the money is in the vault at the bank. The gang's purpose for stealing the money is that the Northfield Bank is advertised as the biggest bank west of the Mississippi. Cole wanted the gang to stop robbing trains and banks because they were going to get amnesty from the state of Missouri. But when a shady deal stops the, the amnesty vote, Cole figures he can get enough money to bribe the vote the other way. Jesse James is more concerned with glory and fame and punishing the North 
for what they did during the Civil War. There's actually a very specific reason uh, the James Gang came to Northfield. Uh, this is how Ron Way of MinPost.com put it back in 2010, and I quote, The real attraction in Northfield was the large bank assets were held by Benjamin Butler, a former Union general, and his son-in-law, Aldebert Ames, a Union commander and former Mississippi governor who had moved to Northfield. Two of the gang were shot dead during the failed robbery. As Jesse and Frank James escaped east on horseback, the rest, including all three wounded younger brothers, hobbled off to the west on foot and were captured two weeks later in a shootout near Medelia, Minnesota. Shortly after his capture, Bob Younger admitted the Northfield Bank was targeted because of its connection with Ames, especially despised by the gang for his support in Mississippi of the civil rights for freedmen. Years later, Cole Younger admitted the same. End quote. During the reenactment, uh, during the defeat of Jesse James days, it said that when the gang came into town, they saw Ames and said, look, there's the governor. And Ames wasn't used to being called governor way up here in Minnesota, and he got a little suspicious. And they think maybe that's what tipped uh, everyone off. Needless to say, the robbery did not go well. Uh, the citizens of Northfield realized what was going on, and people started shooting. A uh, few of the gang died. A few of them later captured. Uh, Jesse and his brother Frank escaped and for the rest of their lives denied they were ever in Minnesota. Again, not very accurate, but it's always fun to watch Cliff Robertson in a role. He's so good at whatever he does, always 100%. It looks like it wasn't always fun in games for Robertson by the looks of this next card. It's a picture of Robertson standing with his arms crossed, surrounded by closed doors all around him, uh, with different names of studios on them. In 1977, Robertson discovered something wrong with his taxes. The IRS said he was paid $10,000 from Columbia Pictures and needed to pay taxes on it. But Robertson hadn't done any work for Columbia recently and had not received $10,000. He discovered that a check from Columbia Pictures with his Ford signature had been cashed out into American Express Traveler's Checks to the president of Columbia Studios, David Bagelman. After bringing the situation to the police and seeing nothing happen, he brought the matter to the FBI. About this, Robertson said to People Magazine in 1983, quote, I was simply looking out for number one. If I hadn't done what the law required, which was to give evidence to the authorities, I would have been party to a crime, end quote. And according to an interview done with METVLegends.com, Robertson said about Hollywood Gate, quote, I was refusing to be an accessory to high crime. Bagelman was charged with grand theft and three counts of forgery for not only forging Robertson's name, but a few others as well. Bagelman pretty much just got a slap on the wrist and even went on to head MGM and later became a producer, though in 1995 he did take his own life. 
Robertson, however, was blackballed in Hollywood for doing the right thing. It would be three and a half years before he would get another role. And in 1981, he was cast in Brainstorm, which was actually released in 1983. The late release of Brainstorm was an attempt to distance the movie from the mysterious death of Natalie Woods in 1981, with Brainstorm being her last picture. This next card is a headshot of Robertson, and he's on a telephone, and it reads, AT&T, the more you hear, the better we sound. One good thing, good career-wise, because integrity is always a good thing, might have come from Robertson speaking out against the studios, and that was becoming the spokesman for AT&T. AT&T spent a few years researching the perfect spokesman and ended up choosing Robertson. In an interview about being selected as AT&T's spokesman, he said, I identified as a Hollywood profile, but not with Hollywood. I think the fact that I exposed corruption helped my image a bit in their eyes. Uh, the area code is two What would long distance service be without long distance operators? Without operators to help you with collect calls, person to person calls, operator assisted calls. We know this, it wouldn't be AT&T. Operator? Cliff Robertson? Operator service. Call anywhere, anytime, over a century of commitment. That's AT&T. The more you hear, the better we sound. Reach out and touch someone. Uh, Robertson would be the spokesman for AT&T for 10 years. And if there's any Gen Zers out there or younger listening to the podcast, landlines before cell phones, you had to have a long-distance carrier if you wanted to call outside your immediate calling area it would cost so many cents a minute and it was a bidding war for companies to get your long distance service uh, just go onto youtube and look up at&t commercials or sprint commercials and uh, you will you will get a taste of what it was like to watch television in that era card here. Looks like this is a picture of Robertson flying his Spitfire MK Roman numeral 9, which is a single propeller World War II fighter plane. Let's just flip this card over here. Robertson loved to fly, and this love started at a young age and continued throughout his whole life. As a young boy of 13 or 14, Robertson would ride his bicycle to a small airport one small sandy runway not far from where san diego international airport is today according to airportjournals.com robertson said quote i would work eight hours a day cleaning airplanes and engine parts and never got paid a nickel but every third or fourth day the chief pilot would say cliff go get your cushion i was short for my age i'd take my cushion out to a little red piper cub and he'd take me up for 15 minutes and let me at the controls once we took off end quote robertson recalled quote i thought i was the ace of aces i thought i was the luckiest kid on the block and i was end quote robertson had many accomplishments in aviation robertson owned and flew a wide range of aircrafts in his day. The Supermarine 
Spitfire that is featured on this card. The Messerschmitt ME180. Uh, he had a Tiger Moth, a Stamp SV4 biplane, and a Beach Baron 58, along with many other aircraft. He also had a license to fly hot air balloons and gliders. And with his glider, he held a state record of 240 miles. He's the first EAA Young Eagles chairman. In 1978, Robertson organized flights of supplies to Ethiopia uh, when a famine hit there. He received the L.P. Sharples Award from the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association, and he's been honored by the U.S. Air Force, the National Sora Museum, and the National Aviation Club. Cliff Roberts, award-winning actor, heartthrob of his day, whistleblower, award-winning pilot and aviation advocate, writer, director, and all-around good guy. There are so many more characters and movies he did than there are cards for in this pack. Sunday in New York, PT-109, where he was hand-selected to play JFK by JFK himself, the Battle for Coral Sea, 633 Squadron. He was in Falcon Crest as Dr. Michael Ransom, Brainstorm, and many other movies for both TV and film. But there are a few more must-have conversations about this Twilight Zone player. And I do have three more cards. One is Robertson sitting on a nightclub stage with a wooden dummy on his leg. Another is a funny-looking Robertson in a wool jacket and a pipe-stove hat with a rifle in hand, cresting over a desert rim. And the last is Uncle Ben in a car with his hand on Peter Parker's shoulder. There's a comic book word bubble coming from Uncle Ben that says, With great power comes great responsibility. We are saving these for part two of our Cliff Robertson series. When we play Six Degrees of Serling. That ends this edition of Bubblegum Card Bios. I hope you've enjoyed your time in the sandbox. Follow me on Twitter at Twilight Zone Sandbox at Zone Sandbox. Or leave me a message at my show page at TwilightZoneSandbox.com. I'd also like to thank Evan Matson for the original theme song of the podcast. Until next time. It's not fair at all. There was time now. There was was all the time I needed. Soylent green is made out of people. Hmm. <laughs> Soylent green is people! Dear me, what are those things coming out of her nose? Hey, hey, watch my helmet. Spaceballs? Never underestimate the power of the Schwartz. Come on, concentrate. Willoughby, this stop is Willoughby.